0: We thank you, Lord, for the many blessings that you have given to us in our lives. We ask you to take these, our tithes, and our offerings, and use them for the furtherance of your work here on earth, through this church, and into the larger world. Bless them, and just bless the people that they will serve. In your name we pray, amen. Please stand. I will try and get us started, but I am not a singer, so... Be Our scripture reading for today comes from John's Gospel, chapter three, starting with verse one. I'm reading the ESV. I think that's the one that they have up on. There. Well, as many of you know, my wife Annette is here in the second pew with me this morning. But what many of you may not realize is that Annette is my second wife, that I was married previously to a woman who is from East Liverpool, Ohio, which is really the reason why I am here, back in Ohio. It was because of my first wife, Debbie, and her being from East Liverpool. And as I was reading this section about Jesus' is interacting with Nicodemus, he speaks about the fact that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that idea of being able to see, of having sight, is such an important biblical metaphor. It shows up in so many places in the Bible. It's a metaphor that's particularly important to me because my first wife, Debbie, was blind. And so we understood very clearly what it is to have sight and what it is to not to have sight. I'm just going to talk about her for a minute before I get into the service. I think it fits into what I'm going to say. I met her in seminary. We were actually married while I was in seminary. Uh, She was blind. And I like to say that's probably the reason we got married in the first place. So she never really saw me when we got married brave, brave girl. And uh, I took my first church in Pennsylvania and I pastored two churches over northwestern Pennsylvania around the Oil City area, if you know where that is. And so we lived in Pittsburgh and we lived in these various places and so we ended up going to this little town in this little nowhere's place and uh, she always had eye problems. She was diagnosed as a baby with bilateral retinoblastoma which is an eye cancer that babies get Uh, Back in the 60s, of course, when she had that, they didn't have very many good treatments for it. So they just basically, well, they actually had to remove one of her eyes, so she only had one eye. And then the other eye, they just bombarded with radiation in order to save the eye, Uh, which did end up saving her eye, but it, it led to other problems later, so that she ended up losing her vision when she was in her 20s. So we ended up in Pennsylvania later and she just started to develop a cataract in this one eye that she had. And uh, so we went to the local doctor, and he said, well, you basically have two choices. You can fix the cataract, or we can remove your only good eye. Not not two real good choices for her. So she decided to have the cataract surgery. So we we go to the local doctor. She goes in for the surgery, and... uh, It's quite an amazing story. So she has this atheist doctor who's working on her eye and uh, he cannot, I don't know a lot about this stuff, but I'll tell you what I know. Apparently there's some kind of machine they use that breaks up the original cataract and then they remove it. So he has this machine that he uses to break up the cataract and he has her on the table and he's trying to break this cataract up and it's so thick that the machine cannot break it. And so the doctor said, I'm not, not sure that this is gonna work. Uh, The nurse is the one who told this story to us. So the doctor finally said, I'm gonna put the machine on the highest possible setting and we'll just see what happens. So the nurse said, okay. So the nurse who was a Christian said, the doctor turned the machine up and I started to pray. And so lo and behold on this last attempt, the doctor was able to break the cataract up and he removed the cataract. He implanted a new lens in her eye had no idea what lens to put in because they couldn't measure her eye, so he just stuck in the one he thought would be appropriate. That night we go home, and we're sitting in the bedroom, the doctor gave me strict orders that I had to take off the bandages and, you know, clean, put clean ones on. So she was very nervous, and so I took off the bandages from around her head, and she looked up to me and she said, I can see. Totally unexpected result. Miraculous result, really. So she looked up to me and she said, I could see you. And then she started crying. And I said, It's not that bad, is it? <laughs> but, uh, you know, of course, it was a very emotional experience to go from being blind to getting your eyesight back. And I was wearing this uh, little sh- t shirt that I was wearing around the house in it. It was a University of South Carolina t shirt. And it said, "University of in South Carolina." And she said, "I can actually read your shirt." And of course, it said in real big letters, you know, university." And I said, "Oh, you can read the, the university." She said, "No, no, I can read the little dinky letters." And so she actually had 20, 2030 vision after the surgery. And, and if, you know, as we're Christians, I'll, I'll relate this part. The whole thing happened, of course, on the Wednesday of Holy Week of all times. And so the congregation of our church, we really didn't tell them too much about it because we were so nervous. And so on Resurrection Sunday, she walks into church seeing for the first time in 20 years. And I said, I don't need to preach very much today. (laughs) That is the story of the resurrection. And I only point it out today because, again, when she was blind she couldn't see. There were so many things she couldn't do. So many things that were difficult for her. When she got her eyesight back she could see. And the world was a different place. And that's why it's such a powerful spiritual metaphor. Because once our eyes are opened to see into God's reality, everything changes for us. And I think we see that here in this passage. It's one of the illustrations that Jesus himself gives us. And I'm going to turn back to the passage. And I'm more, of a, I'm more of a teacher with this stuff, so I'm going to kind of probably be more teaching in my style. But John tells us that there is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, who is a ruler of the Jews, and he comes to Jesus by night. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So clearly, whatever we can say about Nicodemus, he's at least either seen the miracles that Jesus has been doing, or he's heard about them in such a dramatic way that he's convinced there's something special about Jesus. Now that's not true of everybody who heard about Jesus or saw the miracles even among the Pharisees. But Nicodemus clearly seems to see something special with Jesus. He's, I believe he saw directly some of the miracles that Jesus performed. And so he wants to learn more about Jesus. But he comes to Jesus at night. And a lot of people wonder why he would choose to come to Jesus at nighttime. And, and some people see this as a negative, that... Maybe Nicodemus was so afraid of his fellow religious leaders that he wanted to sneak there during the night so no one would see him and talk to Jesus. That's probably part of it. But I think more importantly, and probably more correctly, I think Nicodemus wants to come to Jesus at night because do you know what Jesus' ministry looked like? He was busy all day long. He had crowds following him around. He was working miracles. That's why he often tries to get away and find a quiet moment to pray, right? So I think Nicodemus wants to go to Jesus by night because he wants Jesus in a moment when he can have an honest conversation with him without distraction, without people interrupting him. Because I think Nicodemus was an honest seeker about Jesus. Many of the Pharisees were not honest seekers about Jesus. We read so many passages where the Pharisees either try and trick Jesus or trap Jesus because they have ulterior motives. But Nicodemus, I think, really wants to hear what Jesus has to say. And so he goes at night so that he can have him all to himself for a period of time and learn what it is that Jesus is trying to say. Now, there really were three major religious groups among the Jews in Jesus' day. There were the Pharisees, there were the Sadducees, and there was another group called the Essenes. The Pharisees, of which Nicodemus was, were really just regular people who decided to educate themselves. And they made a promise that they would follow the law in its minutest detail, that they would so dedicate themselves to following the law that God had given to Moses that it would become the very essence of their life. And Nicodemus is not just a regular Pharisee, right? He is the teacher of the Pharisees. He's probably one of the high... In fact, we know he was one of the highest-ranking Pharisees in his day. Now, what's interesting about the Pharisees is that they wanted to follow not just the written law that was given to Moses, but they wanted to follow what they called the oral law, which was a series of laws that kind of went around the law that God gave on Mount Sinai. So they followed the written law and the oral laws that they had made up to go alongside of it. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection, the Sadducees did not. The Sadducees were more of an elite class of religious figures who, were, who wanted to be among the priestly class, and that's where they came from. So they were quite different than the Pharisees because the Pharisees could come from anybody, but the Sadducees had to come from the priestly class. And the Sadducees differed themselves from the Pharisees because the Sadducees only followed the written law and not the oral law. So that's what differentiated them. The Sadducees also did not believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did believe in the resurrection. The third group was... uh, uh, Sorry. And so the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees elected members from each of their group and they became the ruling body of the Jews which was called the Sanhedrin. And there were 70 members of the Sanhedrin. So that's just a little overview of who Nicodemus is. There was another group called the Essenes. They thought both the Sadducees and the Pharisees had become corrupt... So they went out in the desert and they set up a monastic society. And they lived out there. And the Essenes are particularly famous, or at least well known for us, because they gave us what great discovery? The Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls. We have the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is that humongously important biblical find that was found in 1947, I believe, or 1957. Uh, by that little Bedouin boy that gave us all those copies of the Old Testament that we have today to study. So the Essenes were very important historically because they gave us those documents that we have today that was found later. So that's who Nicodemus is. He's a leader of the Pharisees, dedicated completely to following the law in his life. And he was one of the highest teachers of the Pharisees. And he comes to Jesus to talk with him. And so after Nicodemus says to Jesus that no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him, Jesus responds by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Coming on the heels of that initial comment from Nicodemus, it seems to me that what Jesus is saying is, I hear what you're saying, Nicodemus, that you have seen these signs that I'm doing, but no one can do that. No one can see those signs and recognize them for what they are unless something happens first. Unless one is born again, or born from above is another translation. Unless one is born from God, you cannot see the kingdom. Of God. A very famous passage of Scripture. One that is quoted all the time, one that is used quite a bit, and more often than not, this passage, this verse, is used backwards. It's one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible because of what Jesus says. Jesus says, unless one is born again first, You cannot see the kingdom of God second. Many people, many denominations today reverse that order. And what they believe is you have to see the kingdom first and then you become born again. Do you see the difference? And so a lot of of churches, a lot of denominations, a lot of pastors will teach that there's something you have to do. In fact, many people, including Billy Graham, have written books about how you can become born again. If you can do this or that, if you can create the right spiritual context for yourself, if you can do something to affect that change within yourself, that's not at all what the passage says. It's completely the opposite of that. What the passage says is, born again comes first. It's something that happens to you, and then you can see and interact and be a part of God's kingdom. And that's what he wants Nicodemus to see because Nicodemus has spent his whole life focused on what? Doing stuff, following the law, in order to earn his favor with God. He's been meticulous about it. Keeping the law, earning his place in God's purpose and plans. And so now Jesus, in this conversation is going to turn that all on its head because he tells Nicodemus the real way we get to God is by God opening our heart by God opening our eyes and this is what Nicodemus learns from Jesus one has to be born again in order to even see the kingdom And how does Nicodemus respond? He's shocked. He's stunned. He says, How how can this be? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's so confused that he's focused only on the physical idea of birth. And this is something that happens regularly in John's gospel. It just happened in, it's, it's about to happen again. It happened in the last verse. It's going to happen in the, previous cha- in the last chapter when he talks to the woman at the well. Jesus is using the example of water, right? And all she can think about is the physical water in the well, not the spiritual water. And so here Jesus is talking about spiritual birth, but Nicodemus can only think about the physical idea of birth. And Jesus is trying to move him to a spiritual understanding of this. So Nicodemus can't understand how a person can be born again because you can't go back up there and and be born again. He's just confused. He's he's so shocked by what Jesus is, is saying to him here. So Jesus has to kind of gently, in the next few verses, urge him forward in his understanding. So Jesus says, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Born of water and the Spirit. There's a lot of debate about what this means. What does water mean? What does it mean to be born of water? Some people will say, obviously, that must be a reference to Christian baptism. You have to be baptized and you have to be born again by the Spirit. It's possible, but I'm not, I don't. I think that's probably the best understanding because Christian baptism wasn't even in existence at this point in time. Some people will say perhaps what Jesus is talking about is you know when we're born the first time physically the baby is surrounded in this little encasement of water right the water breaks so that we're born physically by water and then we're born again by the spirit. That's a possibility. It's a strong possibility because Jesus' whole focus in this passage is the idea of being born is the idea of birth. So it could be what Jesus is talking about. Other people will go back to those many references in the Old Testament that talk about water and the importance of water, you know, passing through the water in the Red Sea, the water of cleansing, and that water is just a very important biblical metaphor. And that's what Jesus is talking about. You have to have that clean water that God gives to us that cleanses us, and you have to have the Spirit. That's also a possibility. We don't know for sure. I tend to like the birth one because I think it fits into the passage because the whole passage is about birth. It's about being born again. But whatever it is, you have to have both the water and the Spirit. You have to have the Holy Spirit opening your eyes, opening your heart, borning you again. That's why I chose that passage from Ezekiel for the call to worship. That process we call being born again in this chapter, we as Reformed Presbyterians usually refer to that as regeneration. Regeneration is an important theological word. Regeneration is that word for what happens whenever the Holy Spirit first enters us and changes us, changes our heart, from where we were as a sinful person to where we're going to be as one of Jesus' people. It is that change that takes place within us, where God does something that opens us to his spiritual reality in our life. It's the exact thing that Ezekiel talked about in that passage I said, where, where God said, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey your rules. It's a description of what happens to us when the Holy Spirit enters us. He takes that hard heart, that fallen heart that we have, and he softens it and changes it gives us a new heart that is open to him and his purposes in our life. He regenerates us. He makes us new. J.I. Packer, the great theologian and writer who unfortunately recently passed away, he said this about regeneration. Regeneration is the spiritual change wrought in the heart of man by the Holy Spirit in which his or her inherently sinful nature is changed so that he or she can respond to God in faith and live in accordance with his will. It extends to the whole nature of man, altering his governing disposition, illuminating his mind, freeing his will, and renewing his nature. And it's something that God does for us. We don't do it to ourselves. We can't do it to ourselves. Jesus continues to help Nicodemus understand. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Again, in our fallen sinful nature, all we can produce is more fallen sinful nature. But the spirit can produce a new spirit. Again, making the same point. There's nothing we can do as fallen human beings to earn our way to God. God alone can open our heart and change our heart and renew us or regenerate us. And only the Holy Spirit does that for us. That's why we say as Reformed believers that regeneration, that changing of the heart, precedes our faith in God. Now there are other churches, other denominations, they say the reverse. They say that faith comes first, and then once you believe, your heart is changed. That's sort of one of the main differences in approach between Reformed and non-Reformed churches. We believe that the first act is God's. That God is sovereign in our lives about everything, including our salvation. That he acts within us to draw us unto himself. And then we respond in faith. But God is the initial actor. That's why we say, it is by grace you are saved, not of yourself. And he's trying to get Nicodemus to understand this, but this is just such a foreign concept to Nicodemus because he has spent his whole life trying to earn his way to God by following the law. And Nicodemus is struggling with this, as we might expect. So Jesus gives him another example. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit interesting that in hebrew the word wind is the exact same word as the word for spirit ruach and so it's sort of a a play on words here that jesus is making but he says if you walk outside and you see the wind blow or you see the wind blowing can you actually see wind blowing can we witness that no we can't see the wind itself the wind is invisible right how do we know the wind blows we see the effects of it. We might see leaves rustling on the tree. We might see particles blowing across our porch, pollen in the air. We can't see the wind itself, but we can see the result of the wind blowing. And so this is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. The wind blows where it wishes. The Holy Spirit moves across this country, moves across our world however he sees fit. He moves in and out among us as people. We don't see him moving. We don't see the Spirit moving around among us, even sitting here. The Holy Spirit is invisible. But we see the effect of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit enters into your life and regenerates you, we will see that effect. Your life will be changed. Your priorities will be changed. Hopefully. So while we can't see the spirit, we know he's moving because we see his effect. I have seen his effect in my life. I assume that all of you, because you're sitting here in this church, have seen the effect in your life as well. So Nicodemus says to him in verse 9, how can these things be? I do not understand what you're saying, Jesus. I don't understand how this is possible. This goes against everything I have been taught my entire life. I don't understand. Jesus says, let me get this straight. You're the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things. Passages like the one from Ezekiel Passages like Ezekiel 37, where God says, I will make those dry bones live. There are many passages in the Old Testament that Jesus is hoping Nicodemus would have connected to, but that he doesn't. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. I've been speaking, I've been teaching Nicodemus, but you, the Pharisees, don't receive the teaching." he gives him a final example in verse 14. He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is a direct reference by Jesus to an Old Testament passage in Numbers chapter 21, starting with verse 4. And I'm going to read the passage to you. From Mount Hor, this is when they were traveling out of Egypt through the the wilderness. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. We loathe this worthless bread. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So Jesus refers Nicodemus back to this passage at the end of this conversation for a a very important reason. Because Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up that serpent on a pole in the wilderness, and when people looked at that pole, they lived, in the same way, I will be lifted up on a pole, and whoever looks at that in faith, will live. And he's trying to get Nicodemus to see that it's not about keeping the law. It's not about all of this struggle that Nicodemus has put himself in. That the true answer to our brokenness, the true answer to our separation from God, was standing right in front of him. And that he was going to offer his life on a cross on a pole, so that whoever would come to him in faith would have eternal life. And so he refers Nicodemus back to a passage that Nicodemus would have known very well, this passage from Numbers 21. And he says, Nicodemus, this is the way to eternal life. It's not about keeping the law. It's about allowing the Holy Spirit, or not just allowing, it's about the Holy Spirit opening your hearts and minds to see that in that cross, I have given you everything you need. And if you put your faith and your trust in me and on the work that I did on the cross, you will have everlasting life. It's not just a message for Nicodemus. It's a message for all of us. Put your faith in Jesus on his saving work on the cross and rest and trust. Quit trying to earn it. Quit trying to deserve it. Just accept it. Did Nicodemus understand we don't know we do know that nicodemus does show up again after the jesus's crucifixion nicodemus shows up with joseph of arimathea to take jesus's body and nicodemus donates the month the burial spices for him so many people believe that nicodemus did come to faith eventually that he was a secret believer for a while but that he finally, in the end, became a public believer in Jesus. But we all have that chance. We all have that opportunity to put our faith in the one who can truly save us and truly give us eternal life. Amen. We will gather around the Lord's table today and it is a privilege to do that with you today uh, I will just remind us that this is the Lord's table, it's not Tabernacle EPC's table our Savior invites everyone who has put their faith and their trust in him to join us for this meal which he has prepared for us by his own suffering and his own death on the cross let us pray Gracious and loving God, we do give you thanks for all that you have done for us throughout our lives, throughout history. That you have worked even through the fabric of history your purpose. That we see that in the Old Testament in so many places. In places like these passages from Ezekiel, these passages about the serpent put up on a pole, passages like the Passover where the lamb was slain and the blood was put on the doorposts and the lentils. You have revealed your purpose to us throughout all time. You continue to reveal that purpose to us through Jesus Christ, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension, through his continued prayers on our behalf in your heavenly realm. We thank you, Lord, for the many blessings you have given to us for the work that you have done on our behalf. We do ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts by the Spirit so that we could receive you into our lives and so that we could live joyful lives of faith in return. And as we gather around this table today, Lord, we ask that you would just pour your Holy Spirit out upon us, that you would pour your Spirit out upon this bread and this juice, that it would be your mechanism for giving us your grace. That through it, we would commune with you in a special way. That we would receive you, that we would be empowered by you, that we would be blessed by you, that we would know your grace and your love in a very particular way. We thank you, Lord, that we can gather around this table. We thank you that you have given us this remembrance and this sacrament of what it means to be your followers. We are reminded that the Lord Jesus, on the night before he died, he took bread. After giving thanks to God, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body given for you.